Take a boy born and raised in New Jersey on Springsteen and a Southern California beach bum raised in the 60s and what do you get? Do what you like with Tom Cavanaugh and Bob Telford. Today's guest is a triple threat. She's an artist that has created numerous altars as a part of Dea de los Muertos, or Day of the Dead. And she's an advocate for diversity. She's also an awesome writer, which Tom and I can attest to. And needless to say, she's one very busy woman. We love her, and we are so happy to have her here to share her story about doing what she likes. So please welcome Consuelo Flores. Welcome, Consuelo, to Do What You Like. Hi, everyone. Hi, Bob. Welcome. Hi, Tom. How good. Uh, so great to see you and have you here. Yeah. Great yeah. to see you both. I haven't seen you in like since the pandemic, right? And we still and we still look uh, we still look like young men. So we're we're in good shape. We started Beautiful. somewhere. We started somewhere. Yeah. So before we get started here, I just want to throw a quote out. Um that I believe came from you, Consuelo, and it's, we must honor them by fighting for equality, ensuring communities of color are safe, healthy, and have a secure future. Is that something that's correcting the quotation from you? That is correct. That was and, and I gotta, I gotta say, I'm just wondering is that I know that you've created a lot of these altars uh, uh, for Day of the Dead. Um but is culture something that drives you in everything that you do, all your creative ventures? Um, pretty much. I would say yes. Um, what I aspire to achieve is not only an understanding of the diverse cultures that we are exposed to and that can we we can we have the opportunity to interact with or within, but also um the learning aspect of it we learned not only what we have what we share in terms of 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 the commonalities but also learn to appreciate the differences and why they're different and how we can learn from those differences either to incorporate into our lives or to um become um, at, at least an, uh, aware of those differences so that we're not um, shocked into something that we, we may have an adverse reaction to. Uh, I think that's really important. Um, and, and there are examples that I can give about how that can be an adverse reaction and how it really isn't necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you yeah. know what? what's interesting because, well, you are one of the first people I met that were consciously bringing diversity to the table. Now, especially in the last three years, it's an everyday occurrence and an everyday discussion. You've been doing this. This is a lifelong endeavor. This is not trendy for you. This is not something new. This was not something people jumped into. How did you jump into this? Because it's something you're passionate about, but just like what we talk about, you happen to do this 24 and 7. It's what you like to do. And you started this way before anybody got on this. How did you get into the to being a diversity uh, advocate slash expert? 
So I started this literally, I mean, I, I had started this before, like I didn't understand what the concept was, but I knew that this was something that I was um, sort of inclined to do, right? This was um, way back when I was a child and I understood the differences of people within people of color. I, I read a lot of books and I let, read a lot of stories. I read a lot of history. So I identified with um, uh, Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce. I, I identified with, with uh, Harriet Tubman. I identified with, um, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the strike, uh, the grape strike of with Cesar Chavez. I identified with all of these different aspects of these different cultural backgrounds. And I didn't know that that was a, a, a term. Like I didn't know diversity. I didn't know equity. I didn't know. I didn't know those terms at that point. When I went to high school, uh, I went to a private independent boarding school for my last year of high school, which was in Northern California. And at that school, diversity was a foundational um, tenant. And uh, I lived on campus with um, people from all over the world. And I like wow. to say to people, um, I, I, there were 140 students, 100, uh, you know, over, over 70 countries represented um, a lot, you know, all of the U.S., including the barrios of East Los Angeles. Wow. So would you say it was a combination of your, your growing the, 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 the home life that some of it was instilled in you through your family. And then you got, when you got to high school was when you were truly exposed to the diversity. So I was very fortunate um, in that I was the last of 10 children. Wow. And so, and the first three were well everyone everyone up to um myself and my next oldest sister was born in mexico everyone else was born my my one sister and i were the only ones born in the united states so i was actually exposed to all of these different sort of uh, ways of thinking from my parents who were born in the ninth, early 1900s to then my oldest sibling who was, could have been my father, my old, like three oldest siblings could have been my parents. And then everyone after that, there was always some kind of um, movement that was taking place, whether it was the rock and roll movement or the civil rights movement or um, the, um, you know, all of these different movements that were taking place. In my case, it was punk. Like I was born, I was in, I came of age in the era of punk. And so punk had all of these other layers to it, other nuances and complexities to it. But I never forgot the civil rights. I never forgot all of, you know, the, the immigrant rights, the, um, the boycotts of the early 1960s, all of the uh, different historical events that really colored my lens. And so um, part of it, yes, was 
was naturally part of my family upbringing because I was made to be aware of my standing in the community. But a lot of it too was then what I learned from my my academic experiences and my lived experiences, which um, there were many that uh, you know I could point to and say, yeah, that that really colored my lens. That really made a difference. It shifted my direction in a very real and uh, very. Um, what was the first step? What was the first step that you know what? Not only are you affected, not only do you identify, but you like working with this. You like well so, to bring this into the limelight. When 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 was your first step with that? Well, so. The first step was not necessarily something I liked. It was really traumatic. Um, and the first thing that happened that that really shifted my way of thinking and and totally it destroyed the innocence of childhood, but also empowered that child. Wow, that's that's amazing. Yeah. And so, and that was um, in 1970, August 29th of 1970, when I was a nine-year-old girl marching in protest of the Vietnam War, understanding what that protest was about, because I didn't, as a, a, a child, I did not want to know, I did not want to see uh, people being killed um, in war. It was just something that as a child, I did I couldn't comprehend killing for peace, right? So um, we, my family and I, I was part of a group of seven in my family, seven siblings in my family that went to protest that war. And we ended up running, literally running for our lives as the police were shooting tear gas at us. And there were, I believe, four people killed on that day in that event. Among them was Ruben Salazar, who was the journalist for the Los Angeles Times that was the voice of our community. So it was not, Tom, it was not something that I was happy about, um, but it was something that I became passionate Passionate about. about. Yep. And I became committed to like social justice was really a truly important part of my um, of who I am as a person. And so it naturally became um, a launching pad, if you will, um, for anything that I did afterward, especially in my professional life, my personal life, especially, you know, as well. But it's especially in my professional life, because I knew that I could make a difference in my, in my, you know, small nuclear family, but it was the professional work that I could, I felt like I could expand upon that I could really make a, a, a more of a difference, more of an impact on. So when did you first expand on that? Um, well, because again, it, it, it's one thing everybody was socially conscious, but you 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 take it to another level well, before I, other people do. I when I went to um, the Athenian school, um, mm-hmm. I the Athenian school was up in northern is up in northern California in Downville, California. It was a private independent boarding school. I went there. I um, I experienced. Uh, 
the Athenian school has um, a philosophy that you learn not only through lived experiences, so you live on campus with other people of other cultures and other nationalities and other experiences, um, but you also learn through your own lived experiences. So one of the tenets of, of that is that you must um, participate in an outward bound course. And so that is called, uh, for, for Athenian, it was called the Athenian wilderness experience. And in that experience, you you live literally 24-7 in a, in a very... Um, uh, you, you live on what I lived at in Death Valley. Uh, so it was Death Valley with nine, eight other people. There were nine of us in this platoon or pr- patrol. It was called a, a patrol. And you experienced, you, you went through um, 24 hour hikes. You went through getting from point A to point B. You worked on, on uh, learning how to belay, how to jump off cliffs, how to go through all of these just very challenging physical uh, experiences in nature. Um, and so what we did was we learned our, our weaknesses, we learned our strengths, we learned who we were as people. We were people of all different backgrounds, of all different nationalities, of all different economic backgrounds. It was everything that you can possibly, um, it was survivor before survivor. Wow. So this was like in your senior year of high school? This was my senior year of high school. Wow. So what a great time for you to experience all of that and then be able to take it into adulthood. That's Into adulthood. And that is really the premise of that course is to make sure that you learn that, you know, really, truly, truly, um, when it comes down to um, what you truly need, the basics of survival, we are truly all the same. Yeah. And you need to love and support and be there for each other because the one person that cannot be there for the others could be the destruction of everyone. Yeah. Yeah, And so you learn that you learn that. And for me, I've always been completely open to differences, to, um, to cultural differences, to gender differences, to, Anything, you know, everything from physicality to mental uh, um, attributes from or or identifiers. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you connect and that you understand that, as my mom used to say, each finger in my hand is different. <laughs> That's a great analogy. But I need them all. I need them all. Yeah. Now, now, do you think this is an aspect we're losing in contemporary definitions of diversity? Um, I think that now diversity is a catchword. I think diversity is a is a buzzing thing. Like, oh, especially after um, the racial awakening um, subsequent to the George Floyd murder. Yeah. Uh, everybody wanted to jump on the bandwagon, but but that wagon needed to have 
some authenticity to it for it to really have that that traction and um and for me i have lived that for at least two or three decades i don't want to age myself but it is my experience is much more valuable because i've lived it for so long and i have truly understood it and i I live it. I live it every day. That, um, yeah, it's it makes you an it makes you a cultural ambassador. If I, I and I accept that that term because ambassador is someone who who will go ahead of the rest to assure that there is understanding and that there is. Uh, an ability to interface in a in a in an appropriate way, so that I uh, I embrace. Um, so to your point, Tom, is that yes, I um, it, it has been a long while for me, but I I have dedicated a long time and a lot of 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 my lived experiences to that, and so it's been very important to me when now the the term diversity equity inclusion all those terms are so easily brought forth there needs to be that um call and response but that right. response needs to be solid to the to the point about the cultural the, the diversity issue do you think that you're your uh, participation uh, in the building of the altars is helping to bring awareness because I think the biggest problem is is that people look at someone that doesn't look like them and immediately they're put off by that. Whereas if you can show people that it's just me being what I am, accept me for that. Do you feel like that's helpful in terms of broadening the awareness? I I, I absolutely do. So I'm gonna. Uh, take off my glasses and I'm going to show you this. So what I tell people is that we are all the same in the grave. Day of the dead is that great equalizer. Um, when you are gone and when you are in the grave, this mask of flesh, this is what I call a mask of flesh. This that covers uh, that we see, right? This is all um, a facade. Underneath it, we are all we all share the same thing, which is a skull. No one can tell by looking at the skull whether you were male or female, what your political leanings were, right. whether you were rich or poor, whether you were um, a um, what ethnicity you were you no one knows whether you were um jewish or protestant what your religious leanings were it doesn't matter death is the greatest equalizer on the face of the planet and it is very important for us to recognize that um yes what you said uh what you asked um Bob, is that, does this make a difference in the way I view things? Absolutely. Um, 
just as an aside, and this is one of the, um, uh, wonderful things about being open to these things, uh, to, to, uh, being open to, um, diversity and equity and understanding all of what that entails. And that is, as you both, you both know, my husband, my husband is white. Uh, he and I have recently experienced a really challenging time in which he was diagnosed with AML, acute myeloid leukemia, mm-hmm. and required a blood uh, bone marrow transplant to survive, to survive. Right. Um, what a lot of people don't know is that bone marrow transplants uh, do not you, in order to be a match, you don't have to match the blood type. You'll have to match the proteins in your, in your DNA. And that's a whole other like medical explanation that I, you know, don't want to go into, but the proteins are what a lot of people share. And he has a brother, a younger brother, same parents, same grandparents, same everything who was a zero, zero match. Wow. And um, he is, my husband is white. My brother, my brother-in-law is as white as white can be. Zero match, zero match. Hmm. Um, he entered, he was entered into the bone marrow registry and he turned up, uh, you know, several matches, which were, we were very fortunate about. And they narrowed it down to two people who were vibrant and, you know, like very young and very virile and strong and all of these attributes because my husband is six foot two. They needed someone at least at his stature or it, or in that ballpark, because it would be easier for his body to accept, uh, <laughs> Okay. So they chose this one guy and we did not meet him until two years. That is the law or that is sort of like the procedure, the protocol that you don't meet your donor until two years later, because by, you know, for all intents and purposes, that means that you've, you've gone through the worst of it and you've survived. If you meet, um, meet the, the donor before it could be traumatic. If the recipient dies before that. So we met the donor two years after, and the donor turns out to be Japanese American. Wow, that's amazing! So it was like that. Just tell me, oh, yeah. It just told me that you know, uh, race. Another reminder of the equalizer, <laughs> and that 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 we live in a socially constructed society. Have you, have, you know, in your construction of the altar, um, it's a it's a living piece of art. Your altars, right? You can pretty much they they go up yearly. They change. What was the effect that this experience had on your altar creating after after? Because it's been two years of this battle with Stephen's leukemia. And on top of everything that happened in the world, how, how have the altar, altars changed? Well, for me, it was, um, 
I I was very, and we joke about it. I when because Stephen helped me to build a lot of the altars this year, um, and I I I we joke about it that I'm that I'm glad he wasn't in the altar that he was helping with the. Altar. He's a construction. Yeah, he's he's constructing them. He's not constructing. He's not being uh, honored in the altar. Yeah. But um, this, you know, this year was more about our really, because what a lot of people don't know is that the last, um, the last major uh, health challenge that Stephen had was the, he, he actually contracted the SARS coronavirus Mm -hmm. in May of 2019, well before the um, present day variant of the coronavirus. He contracted the SARS coronavirus. Wow. And of the five near fatal experiences that we had in 15 months, that being the last one, that one was the most scary, the one that we did not think we were going to make it through. Um, And so when this whole um, pandemic started, not only were we well um, versed in isolation, but we had a keen and unwanted understanding of what the coronavirus could do in wreaking havoc to our health system and understanding that it was the strength of the virus versus the strength of the human body. Right. That's that's the battle. That's and the battle. Is. Yeah. Hey, um, before I forget, is it is it also true that that this uh that you created an altar that was dedicated specifically through to honoring uh Latino and, and black communities that have been impacted by COVID-19? Can that you talk correct. about that a little bit? So uh, it is currently on exhibit. Um, it is at the Craft Contemporary um, on Wilshire Boulevard, Wilshire Boulevard, and Curson. Wow, yeah, um, sure, I know exactly where it is. It is right across the street from the La Brea Tar Pits, the actual tar pits. Um, and and the reason why I dedicated the altar to the Black and Latino communities is because. Um, we are the most impacted by this virus. And why is that? Because we are, by and large, the um, essential workers. We need to go to work. Uh, We need to provide for our families. We often live in multi-generational homes, meaning that our, our parents live with us who are their children who then live with our children and then our grandchildren. So it is multi-generational. Um, and when one person would get sick, that person would bring it home and it would infect an entire family. And I can tell you that while I didn't know them personally, I was affected by that and it made a huge impact on my the the horror of of this pandemic and how it affected our communities 
when uh, Stephen and I would, we would walk in our old neighborhood and we would go to the neighborhood market and that neighborhood market, we would buy tortillas because they were freshly made. And every Thursday they would bring freshly made tortillas to this market. So we would make it a point to go on Thursdays to this market. And we went one Thursday and there weren't any. And we thought, oh, well, maybe we missed it. And we went the next Thursday and there weren't any. And so we asked the owner of the market, hey, what's going on? And she told us that not only had the delivery guy gotten sick with COVID, uh, but he was one of three sons that lived with their parents and one of the son's wives and their children, and they all got sick, all of them. And the parents, the uh, the elders, they died. The three brothers died. (sighs) the uh and including the delivery guy for that store mm-hmm. and and the 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 children also got sick of the children at that point um so was this when california hit peak or was this before when they weren't really talking about it properly in the media you know what i i i honestly can't tell you I don't, I was just so overwhelmed. I don't know whether it was, I don't think it was peak. I don't, I think it was probably where, when it was becoming, uh, uh, people were understanding the ramifications of. Right. Cause these are the stories that didn't come out in the beginning. Yeah, no, they did not. And this was a personal story that we knew about because we knew the owner of that store. A lot of people will go, okay, yeah, I, I appreciate that, whatever. But what I find interesting about you is, is that you're taking even tragedies, you're taking every, you know, things that are happening in, in everyone's lives, and you're taking it and you're using it, and you're putting together, you're you're creating art. And am I correct? And I mean, is that is that I mean, where does that come from that it's not just about going, oh, wow, that's too bad. Gee, I hope they get back. You're actually taking these circumstances and you're saying, I want to create based on that. Am I correct in that assessment? Yes, because there but for the grace of God go I. Right. Yeah, but doesn't this go back? Weren't you in groups downtown that featured that that made sure they combined politics and visual art? Was it? I forget the right name. It was the one group, Los Coyotas. Las Coyotas, yeah. LA Coyotas. And that was basically a group of women who it was half visual artists and half writer performers who took issues that were important to the community and uh, created work addressing those issues. Um, how far, and, how long ago was that? That, would, that, was, in the, it, that was in the, in the 1990s. Wow. So before you've been, you've, been, you've been at it a long time. Yeah, now. that's the that that you know, and that's the and and it's all your passions rolled into one, which not all of us get to do. No. No, we don't we, we don't find our paths that way so easily. Most people don't find their path that way. And when when we call you a triple threat, it's more than just a triple threat in the terms that we know a triple threat, right? The, the, this is a triple threat of visual art, written art. And diversity and and equity. 
Yeah, and, and what I'll piggyback on that before you jump in, Consuelo, what I'd like to say is, is that this, this basically demonstrates that you are the epitome of a cultural ambassador because creative people decide to uh, artistically enhance what's around them, and that makes you a create a cultural artist because you're enhancing the world around you instead of just simply, you know, taking care of yourself. So, so what I'm going to say to that is that um, I what what I aspire to do and what I aspire to accomplish is to give voice to the voiceless. And it, it, it truly is that, I mean, that is a term that is used very often and it becomes sort of cliche. But when I'm, when I say that, I literally think of my mom, my mom was an amazing woman. Um, she, you know, really she was the backbone like the spine of our family and the backbone to a lot of of change if it weren't for her you know none of my siblings or their children would have had the opportunity including me to make a difference in the world right so i honor i i everything that i do i want to do um, with the, uh, with the understanding that I'm honoring my parents, my, my mom, I, I just talked to my, literally just talked to my son about this yesterday. My son, um, is facing his own challenges as being an artist and being, you know, wanting to, um, find the happy medium with making a living and also being an artist and also being, um, social justice minded. Right. Right. So, and that's a very difficult uh, place to be uh, or to try to achieve. Um, But I told him, you know, my, my mother was very practical. Um, My father was a, a romanticist. So I had to find this balance between these two and, and then understand that I could use art to advance social justice. I could use art uh, to call attention to um, things that were inequitable. So diversity, equity, and inclusion was really part of my, the fabric, the, uh, you know, thread in, in the tapestry of what I call my life. And so that is other threads that are part of that tapestry are art and culture and a respect for all art and culture, whether it comes from, uh, you know, South Central Los Angeles, from uh, Thai town, from, you know, little Tokyo, from East Los Angeles, from any part of, of our cultural background, this city is rich it is so Southern California has one of the most rich of all of the cities in terms of being able to visit some part of Southern California and literally, literally visit, be able to visit another country. You go to Cerritos and you can visit India. You go to Westminster and you can visit um, 
uh, little Vietnam or little Hanoi. You go to Gardena and you can visit um, little Hawaii. You can go to uh, Filipino town. You can go to little Tokyo. You can go to Chinatown. It is so rich in its diversity. And for people to not acknowledge that or be very um, stagnant in their own little comfort zone and not want to understand or not want to experience other cultures, when you have that at hand in this city or in this region of Southern California, I I find that, uh, you know, um, uh, I don't understand it. But going back, my, you know, I was telling my son that the, that you can be practical and you can be uh, an artist at the same time. You just have to find that balance and you have to really want to make a difference and and keep to it. Um, I'm I'm still trying. I will always. But, but at the same time, when you were exploring this visually and through your art. You also took it to the entertainment industry. Yes. And how did that happen? And 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 what was that like in the beginning? Because we're talking, how long ago was that? I started in 1998. Wow. And, um, and then my last foray in the entertainment industry in earnest was in October of 2020. Uh, af- um, my last role was at SAG-AFTRA as a director of um, diversity. Well, I, I was a director in the diversity department. Okay. I, was, I was director of strategy, policy, and analysis, which in in a, in in short was basically uh, looking at the employment practices of the industry and. Um, looking at who was getting hired and who was not getting hired and the statistics on, on the employment practices. And as far as uh, people of color, uh, the, all of the federally and state protected class groups. Now, were you able to take, I mean, was that something that you were able to change the landscape or did you just simply analyze it and give the data? I did. I, I, while I was employed, all I could do was, um, you know, read it, analyze it, provide papers, write papers, um, write reports. I, I was able to um, make a few differences, but those differences didn't come about, didn't actually get manifested until after I left, though I was truly I was truly happy to see them uh, implemented. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but in 98, when nobody on the other side of the desk really recognized this, what was that atmosphere like? And, and, and how did, how did you draw attention to this? Um, 98. So what I did in 98 was I was part of an organization called, the Latino Entertainment Media Institute. And um, I remember very clearly um, there was, there were, there were a lot of challenges in that it was very, I was working very specifically within the Latino community and the, the challenges that I, 
I faced much like everyone else in that arena uh, was that we were basically trying to get out of the stereotypes of being characterized uh, in the media even in the, in journalism, we um, all the stories that journalists would be uh, focused on were that of uh, drugs, drug addicts, or gang violence, things like that. Um, the storylines in the media or in the entertainment industry were about uh, gang gang bangers, maids, um, hookers, things like that. And so we were all trying to make a difference in, in addressing that and dismissing that and telling people there are more stories than just those that, that our community um, has. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, in 2000, I went into, I started working at Writers Guild. And I will tell you that one of the most satisfying parts of my career has been either at Writers Guild or working at AFTRA or working at SAG-AFTRA is seeing people who I have created programs for, um, seeing those people succeed. So there, I, I, I was part of the writers training program at, I actually, um, I, I was the writers training program at uh, Writers Guild, it no longer exists. Yeah, yet. what was the what was the Writers Training Program? So the Writers Training Program was you get a neophyte writer, someone who's just coming up into the industry, who has no writing credits at all, uh, but is interested in becoming a writer for uh, TV. Specifically, it would be for TV, and I would reach out to executive producers and ask them, can you, um, you know, there is a, an internship opportunity here. You will be working with us. Um, and can you provide a position for a writer's training, uh, intern or a writer's training, um, writer through the, the WGA. And so because it was sanctioned by the WGA, it was, more often than not welcomed it would be um it it would not be like a cold call because the writer uh, wga was an established organization Mm -hmm. so if they had it then it would be more easily of you know producers would be more apt to open the doors for that and so some of the writers that went through the writers training program are now they went they became writers, they became writers in the writer's room, and then they became story editors, and then associate producers, and then producers, and then, and now a lot of them are showrunners, and I recognize, I see them, mm-hmm. and a lot of them are friends of mine, and so I see them, and I'm, you have no idea how happy I am when I see their names um, on either you know, films or new TV shows. And I see that they are not only succeeding, but are continuing to be successful and they're opening doors for other writers. That's the writers. And then I see the same thing with actors. God, there were so many when, um, because, and Bob, you, you will remember when I, it was after, before the merger, 
Yep. We, we would have, I would have uh, the minimum of, it would be the average of uh, 10 workshops a month. That would be between, it would be like two and a half workshops a week. Yeah. And so many of those performers have made it and I would see them on, I saw, I literally just saw one of our performers on a commercial uh, last night and I was like, oh my God, there she is. (laughs) And it's so exciting to me. I get so happy because I feel like I was, I was a step on their ladder of success. Well, and that's the thing is, is that you're able to see the fruits of your labor and know that you're doing something good out there as opposed to just taking up space. And I think that's just remarkable, you know, and it seems like you do that in everything you do, which is, it's in your core. Yeah. Am I right? I, that's true. That is in my core. I appreciate visual artists and there was, there are a few that I, in the latest uh, job that I've had, which is, I'm a project manager uh, that for an, um, an activation, a series of activations that's been funded by the Getty. And so I've traveled from Pomona to Lancaster to East LA to Long Beach. Um, and it's all, uh, this is all visual artists. So uh, the visual artists include a, a black woman, a young woman in Pomona, a Latino in Lancaster alongside um uh, an, um, a Muslim artist who is just starting out in Lancaster to Cambodian artists in Long Beach. And it's just, it's super gratifying to see that they are being recognized for the talent that they have and they're incorporating the communities around them as well. well now, I know that you've had a, a tremendous influence on, on your sons as far as artistic and creativity, are you going to continue that trend with the grandchildren? Oh my God. Yes. So that's a, I, I curated a show in Highland park uh, for day of the dead and it was all encompassing. It was focused on COVID and um, it also, I also co-edited a, um, an anthology called um, COVID isolation and hope artists respond to the pandemic that's the title and it's it, it will it's you can purchase it online now and advanced copies it will come out in february as the publication but because of those two things i invited the uh some of the poets from the anthology to have a reading uh to be part of the reading for the re- final reception of that the art exhibit in highland park and now because of the work that I did there uh, and because uh, the owner of the gallery kn- knows that, you know, I'm a new grandma um, and, and the holiday season is upon us, um, I was invited to be, uh, I don't know if it's, it, it's not, um, I, I was invited to sit in the car for the holiday parade. Ah, yeah, uh, not the grand marshal, but you'll be in the parade. Yeah. But here's the thing: if I could include my grandbaby, so I said I will only include my grandbaby if my daughter-in-law can be in it. 
There you because, go. You know, I I I want to make sure that it's all all it's, generations yeah. are represented. Yes. Yeah. So so my my daughter in law Omega and my grandbaby Ben and I will be part of the parade on Sunday this coming Sunday. Wow. And so yes, absolutely, he's going to be. Um, I I was making flowers, paper flowers <laughs> with him. Uh, mm. He was part of the the whole mess of Day of the Dead when he, he was part of the altars. Yeah, yeah, he was part of the altars. I saw that. You know what's what's fascinating to me, and I'm going to share this with you. Tom and I, when we decided to do this show, the podcast, Tom says, "Listen, we need to make up lists of people that we would like to have as guests." You are the only person that was on both of our lists. From the top. We are so in awe of you and the things that you're doing and the fact that we were able to get you to be a participant, to come and share all of this with our audience. Um, We are totally, you know, know, gratified and and, uh, forever in your debt, Uh, you know. For, for doing this. Now, now I know you're also published uh, papers. Is, is anything out that they can read? We know the visual work is out there. So but any of your writing out there, we so, can read. So before I get to that, I, I just want to just tell you, Bob and, and Tom, um, you have no idea how uh, just touched I was that you, you reached out to me to ask me for this. I, well, we fought. We fought over you. I will say this: we <laughs> well, fought over you. You, you are both so special to me. Uh, I love you both very much, and, and and Stephen, of course, loves you both to death. Yeah, we we. I I would say we both share. You know, if I I can speak for Tom, we we both love you guys. Just you cannot imagine how much you know how much of an impression you've made you you know i mean this is just this is what you are and this is uh, the kind of people that you are which is fantastic so so going back to the the written part i i have a chapter speaking of my grandson <laughs> I, I have a chapter in a in an anthology that was released in october of 20 2020 actually the funny thing is that the op- the the book um, the soft opening or the book reception because it was all virtual at the time uh, it was it happened uh, on the literally literally the day that I was laid off. Wow. I had to cut short the reception so I could jump onto the the Zoom call. Uh, Being laid um, off. When to get the news that oh yeah you're being you've been laid yeah. off wow um but but it uh the it's called field notes on allyship and it's available through Amazon of course everything's available through Amazon but um on it's field notes on allyship and I have uh a, a um a uh a chapter in it. Mm-hmm. Nice. And it's basically my my personal experience in understanding um, the importance of Black Lives Matter, not just the 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 movement, but the the reality of it. Mm-hmm. Why? Because my my grandson is is half black and half Mexican. Okay. 
And so he is, um, and he is the love of my life. He is, you know, like I cannot ever think of my life without him anymore. And, and now that, uh, I'm getting a new one, a new, another baby, um, same, same cultural background. I just, so that to me, I, I, when I think of my sons, I think of, and my grandbabies, I think that I have raised them right. Meaning that, uh, they are open. They are, they are, uh, accepting. They, they, they don't, they're not, they don't discriminate. So my, my younger son is married to the, you know, she, I call her my, my piece of candy because I love her so much. No. And she is, um, she's a, a, a young black woman who is the most beautiful person. Um, and I, I just adore her. My older son is married to a, a young woman who is just um, so amazing and so um and she's chinese american so uh you know i i am beyond thrilled that i have instilled in my children an appreciation for human beings not not one specific type of person right that that's amazing. That's fantastic. Beautiful. Well, I I don't know. Uh, I I think we're coming to the end here. But is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience uh, with regards to, uh, you know, uh, any any other words of wisdom that you'd like to pass along with regards to uh, you know passionate and doing what you like? I think the most important thing for me um, in this time of so much divisiveness and so much um, just so much ugliness that's come out is that to just for people to remember that ultimately, like I go back to that whole idea of my husband's siblings being a zero match there is zero match. Mm-hmm. They couldn't have saved his life, if, even though they wanted to. Even though they did everything they could, they were still a zero match. And it was a Japanese-American man who saved his life. And it is so important for us to realize that all of these things are constructs. That, were, they, that means that someone made them the 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 differences that we that we see that we are living by they are man made mm. and that it is important for us to go beyond what is man made and go to the actual important part of what makes our lives and really recognize that we are all human and that we are all we all share the same proteins and the same DNA. Ultimately, we are so like there's such a tiny bit of difference, like literally zero point difference in how we are. That we need to really 
embrace the commonalities and appreciate those differences, not the other way around. Like we, we shouldn't reject them. We should not, we shouldn't uh, be adverse, have adverse reactions to them. We are ultimately um, really the same proteins, the same DNA. And, and we need, we need to recognize that these constructs are what are keeping us apart. Yeah, very well said. Very well said. I don't know about you, Tommy, but I um real quick. I is, love it. Is, is there a website address? Any oh yeah, a place they can find you at if people want to learn more from you. So I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Facebook, and I'm on LinkedIn. It is under Consuelo G. Flores or Consuelo G. Flores or Poeta Flores. P o e t a F-L-O-R-E-S. Yeah. Um, Consuelo, C-O-N-S-U-E-L-O, not A. <laughs> and um, G. Flores. And, uh, I I don't have the exact uh, web address, but, you know, I if you see. If you see art installations, that's probably me. Excellent. And we'll put it up. We'll put uh, we'll put links. Well, yeah, we have absolutely, our, absolutely. Our sites. Yeah, uh, my thank you to you, Tom Cavanaugh in New Jersey. Uh, you know, yeah. enjoying the East Coast weather, and and for myself, well, my Bob thanks Telford. to you, Bob Telford in, in California. Right. We tell everybody out there to stay safe, be well, have fun, and do what, what you, you like. like. That's right. Thank you all for listening, Tommy. Thanks, it's everybody. good to talk thanks, to you Bob. again. And we will do this once again soon, all right? Uh, Yep, we're coming back.